ADD Cast Episode 55. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Paul Fisher, your host. And I'm glad you're here. This week, I'm pleased to be able to share with you the audio I recorded at a recent NCAS event in Arlington, Virginia. NCAS, the National Capital Area Skeptics, puts on monthly talks and discussions. Their January 2008 talk was given by Michael Shermer, who read from and talked about his new book, The Mind of the Market, Compassionate Apes, Competitive Humans, and other tales from evolutionary economics. Mr. Shermer discusses how economics and evolutionary theory speak the same language, and how our hardwired human biology affects modern economics. Those of you familiar with the skeptics movement may know Mr. Shermer as a founder of the Skeptic Society, a frequent guest on Skepticality, and the author of other nonfiction works, including Why Darwin Matters, the case against intelligent design, why people believe weird things, pseudoscience, superstition, and other confusions of our time, and science friction, where the known meets the unknown, as well as many more titles. I want to thank Mr. Shermer and NCAS for giving me permission to record this talk so I can present it to you. I also want to give you a heads up on the audio quality. This talk was recorded on a pair of iRiver IFP 899 MP3 players with external microphones. One unit had a giant squid, stereo cardioid mic, and the other was using a Griffin lapel mic. The recording of Mr. Shermer sounds great. However, the audio of the audience, when they ask questions, is utterly impossible to listen to. I have clipped out the audience questions and replaced them in my own voice. I've tried to stay as close to the original question as asked, but in some cases I was unable to make out the exact wording. In those cases, I provide a question based on what I could hear of the audience member and the context of Mr. Shermer's reply. If you crave more insight from Mr. Shermer, you should head over to the Skepticality website and listen to episodes 12, 33, 34, 45, 49, 52, and 69, which all feature Michael Shermer. Episode 69 was the latest episode of Skepticality at the time this podcast was released. It features an interview with Mr. Shermer talking about his latest book, The Mind of the Market, the book that he talks about in this podcast. Links to NCAS, The Skeptic Society, Michael Shermer, his books, and his Skepticality interviews can be found on our website, www.addcast.net. Mr. Shermer's talk was 80 minutes long. If I kept it as a single episode, it would be 100 minutes and a whopping 80 megabytes. I decided to break up the talk into two parts. This episode is part one, and part two will be released next week. Closing out this episode will be my favorite skeptic song, Think for Yourself by George Robb. George is a professional musician and podcaster who embraces new media and supports podcasters. I find his music makes me want to get up and dance, 
while his lyrics are thought-provoking and insightful. You can find his podcast at geologicpodcast.com. He suggests you start with episode 50. Information about his music is available at geologicrecords.net. You can purchase his albums at CD Baby, Amazon.com, and on iTunes. George will also be appearing at Balticon 42 on Memorial Day weekend. Find out more about Balticon 42 at www.balticon.org. Balticon is spelled B-A-L-T-I-C-O-N. One final plug for George, he is also a member of ConcertsInYourHome.com, a website where people can invite musicians to play concerts in their own homes. A direct link to George's entry can be found on our website, as I find it a little difficult to find his entry through their search page. And now, here's a quick promo before I start part one of our featured talk by Michael Shermer. You've entered the twisted mind of Scott Sigler. You've descended into the inner darkness of Phil Rossi. Now, journey into the imagination of T. Morris. This is Moravi Remastered. The world's first podcast novel, reimagined with a new soundtrack, restored scenes, and the voice talents of Philippa Ballantyne, Christiana Ellis, and George Harab. And the podcast continues in the fall of 2008 with Legacy of Moravi. And in 2009 with an original podcast anthology, The Dragon Clan of Moravi. A project so sweeping in scope, an adventure so epic in scale. It takes two ballsy voiceover professionals to cut the promo. Moravi Remastered. Pirates. Ninjas. And one hell of a good time. Subscribe at www.moravi.net and enjoy the ride. We're the National Capillary Skeptics, by the way. I'm Scott Snell. <laughs> Keep a little teaser there. Who is this person? Uh, I'm the vice president filling in today for our president, Gary Stone, who couldn't be here today. And it's my very great honor to introduce our distinguished guest, Dr. Michael Shermer, who 15 years ago co-founded the Skeptic Society and is currently serving as its executive director. He's also the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a monthly columnist for Scientific American, the host of the Skeptics Distinguished Science Lecture Series at Caltech, an adjunct professor of economics at Claremont Graduate University. He received his BA in psychology from Pepperdine University, MA in experimental psychology from California State University Fullerton, and his PhD in the history of science from Claremont Graduate University. He's appeared on such shows as The Colbert Report, 2020, Dateline, Charlie Rose, Larry King Live, Tom Snyder, Donahue, Oprah, Lisa, and Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> but proudly, he notes, never Jerry Springer. <laughs> and other shows as a skeptic of weird and extraordinary claims, as well as interviews on countless, on, in countless documentaries aired on PBS, A&E, Discovery Channel, the History Channel, the Science Channel, and the Learning Channel. 
Shermer was the co-host and co-producer of the 13-hour Family Channel television series Exploring the Unknown. And in 2006, he received NCAS's Philip J. Class Award for Outstanding Contributions in Critical Thinking and Scientific Understanding. He's written 10 books with topics ranging from the study of Holocaust deniers to the case against intelligent design, to the science of good and evil and of religious belief, and to his new one, The Mind of the Market, which is for sale and signing after the talk. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Michael Shermer. Well, good afternoon. How's everybody? Oh, I guess I should stand close to the mic. So, uh, well, it's so good to see uh, some old friends, uh, the Denmans uh, entertaining me this morning and, and uh, Michelle for uh, making the National Science Foundation available. This is pretty cool. So uh, anyway, uh, just as a show of hands, how many of you uh, are coming to a National Capital Area Skeptics meeting for the first time? Wow, a lot of first timers. Now, another show of hands, how many of you have never been to a National Capital Area Skeptics meeting? Okay. Now, if you raised your hand twice, you need to join the skeptics right away. So to that extent, uh, the literature is there, of course, a great local group in our magazine, Skeptic Magazine. I've passed around a couple clipboards. Uh, you can get that free. The electronic version of it free comes out once a week on Wednesdays, uh, various reviews and commentaries and whatnot. And, uh, and the magazine is the quarterly publication of the society. We investigate claims of the paranormal, pseudoscience, fringe groups and cults and claims of all kinds between science, junk science, voodoo science, bad science, pathological science, non-science and nonsense. <laughs> and uh, as you know, there's a lot of it out there. And uh, so that's what we do uh, in part debunking nonsense, but, uh, but more importantly, trying to understand why people believe in that. And uh, so for example, a recent issue, 9-11 conspiracy, was 9-11 a conspiracy? Well, yes, of course it was. 19 Al-Qaeda members, that constitutes a conspiracy, but the so-called 9-11 truthers think it's a different conspiracy, that the Bush administration and George W. himself orchestrated this uh, incredible conspiracy involving hundreds or thousands of operatives uh, planting demolition devices inside the World Trade Center buildings, operating planes, remote control to fly into the buildings to hit just where the explosives have been carefully placed, uh, and so on and so on. This. By the way, the same people who think Bush is the most incompetent president we've ever had, <laughs> somehow he also managed to pull off the most incredible conspiracy in the history of civilization. And, and remarkably, not one person involved in the conspiracy has come forward to appear on Larry King Live to tell what he saw. Uh, I mean, this is the obvious problem right off the bat. People can't keep their mouths shut. Look what happens whenever uh, government agents or bureaucrats or politicians retire or leave or quit or get fired, they write a book and tell about every little minutia that they saw and they go on the lecture circuit and on TV shows and so on. And so obviously if somebody had been involved in that or told somebody that they were involved in that, we would have heard about that by now. Um, nevertheless, that's the kind of thing we do. Our next issue, our latest issue is on uh, uh, medical controversies. Do vaccinations cause autism, for example? No. And, uh, but, but why would people think that they do? Because we're anecdotal thinkers. We connect A to B and, you know, I gave my kid this vaccination shot and a year later he showed autistic symptoms. You know, there must be a connection, something like that. Uh, but of course, science does not come naturally. It's, it's, it's uh, counterintuitive, the idea of control group and experimental group or big epidemiological studies to, to see if these are just accidentally overlapping populations or if there's a real causal connection. And, 
you know, so we've had millions of years of evolution of just plain old A to B association learning anecdotal thinking and only a couple hundred years of scientific thinking. So that's why it requires eternal vigilance to keep at it because it doesn't come naturally. Um, uh, which uh, gets me into the subject of the mind of the market. Anyway, so the, the, re the way this book came about, what I do is apply science to different areas. So why people believe weird things is about science and pseudoscience and cults and groups like creationists and Holocaust deniers and then uh, how we believe was about science and God, science and religion, and then science of good and evil was about science and morality. And so now I'm just sort of pushing it in just to a new area, just to, you know, just to push myself intellectually and, and to try to answer some questions that, uh, that I think science has at least something to say, even if not, it's, uh, it's not the ultimate answer to a lot of the problems we're trying to solve. So uh, the mind of the market is I'm using the term in sort of two different ways, or the expression in two, two different ways, that the market has a mind of its own, um, and that there are minds operating in a marketplace. And uh, so in the, in the second one, if you just think about it for a second, I mean, what's Shermer doing in economics? Well, uh, I study human irrationalities, and, and there's no reason to think that, that uh, people that are, people, us, are irrational in so many areas of our lives would suddenly become rational calculators when we walk into a supermarket or make an investment in the stock market or, or act as economic agents in, a, in, in an economy. There's no reason to think that we wouldn't be subject to all the cognitive biases that we already know about that operate in, in every other aspect of life. So that's half the book. That's a, sort of two different layers. That's one layer. Is, uh, and that comes from mostly the study of uh, behavioral economics. It's a fairly new science. In fact, uh, the last few Nobel Prizes were given for people that do, Nobel Prize in economics, for people that do behavioral, econom behavioral economics. Uh, the two pioneers of this field, Amos Tversky and, and Daniel Kahneman, uh, in fact, Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics. Tversky would have, but he died. So uh, they don't give it to you posthumously, but he, he certainly would have. And, and uh, neither of those guys have had a single course in economics. So that tells you something about there's a shift in the, uh, in the field. That is, instead of asking what people should be doing mathematically and theoretically speaking when they act as economic agents in an economy, uh, what these guys wanted to know is what do people actually do when you, when you go watch them and measure them and test them in labs and in the real world. And uh, that, that's sort of a revolutionary idea. <laughs> it shouldn't have to be, but uh, anyway. So, um, and, and then the other layer is sort of, so that's sort of a descriptive level of the book that is describing the way things are. And then a prescriptive level is, well, maybe the way things should be given what we know about the way things are uh, about human behavior. So I'll begin with, um, I'll begin with um, the beginning. <laughs> Actually, I'm fond of telling my atheist friends, uh, the second word in my book is Jesus. <laughs> in Jesus's parable of the talents, recounted in Matthew 25, the gospel author recalls the Messiah as saying in the final verse, for to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Well, this is the conservative's favorite gospel passage. <laughs> See, Jesus was a conservative. <laughs> and out of context, this hardly sounds like the wisdom of the prophet who proclaimed that the meek shall inherit the earth. But in context, Jesus's point was that properly investing one's money as measured in talents uh, generates even more wealth. Um, the servant who has, was given five talents invested it and gave his master 10 talents in return. The servant who was given two talents invested it and gave his master four talents. Um, but the servant who was given just one talent buried it in the ground and gave his master back just the one talent. 
The master then ordered his risk-averse servant to give the one talent to the servant who had doubled his investment of five, and so he who earned the most was rewarded with even more, and thus it is that the rich get richer. Uh, now, Jesus probably had something in mind more than an economic allegory about selecting the right investment vehicle for your money. <laughs> uh, but I want to employ the story as a parable about the mind of the market. In the 1960s, a sociologist of science, Robert K. Merton, conducted an extensive study of how scientific ideas are discovered and credited in the marketplace of ideas, in this case, treating science as a market, and found that the eminent scientists typically receive more credit than they deserve simply by dint of having a big name while their junior colleagues and graduate students, who usually do most of the work, <laughs> go largely unnoticed. A similar well-known effect can be seen in how innovative ideas and clever quotes gravitate up and are given credit to the most famous person associated with them. So of course, in our little world, our most famous quip, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, is almost always prefaced with, as Carl Sagan always said. Uh, well, it's true, he said it, uh, he said it in Cosmos, um, but he got it from a relatively obscure sociologist of science named Marcello Truzzi, uh, one of the founders of the Skeptical Inquirer magazine, uh, who wrote it in just a, just a little nothing paper that hardly anybody read, but Carl read. And, uh, and uh, so, so forevermore, of course, it, uh, whoever heard of Marcello Truzzi, you probably already forgot the name. Um, but Sagan, certainly we don't forget. So that, that's an example of the, of the mind and the market. Uh, marketers call this cumulative advantage. They don't call it the Matthew effect, but it's the same thing. That is, you try to get for your product a little bit of a head start, a cumulative advantage over the other products. And then that cumulative advantage sends a signal to other potential customers that that must be a good product because other people are buying it. So they're more likely to buy it, which causes more people to buy it. And you get a a positive feedback, an autocatalytic feedback loop going there. And that's why authors do book tours. That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, and you know, when you walk into Barnes and Noble and or Borders and they have that front table, new arrivals, you know, and uh, so if you go in and you'll see the mind of the market, uh, you have to pay for that space. That space is purchased by publishers, just like Coca-Cola has to pay to have their Coke in the, in the supermarket. And the books are products that are on the end caps of the aisles. You pay for that space and so on. And all that's done in order to get your, in this case, book on the New York Times bestseller list, which sends more signals to consumers to buy that book, which drives it further up the list and, and off and running you go. So um, uh, so that's one example of the mind of the market. A larger one, the one I'm trying to, the, the problem I'm trying to solve in the book in the long run, the bigger picture. Uh, so I began with chapter one, The Great Leap Forward. Um, living along the Orinoco River that borders Brazil and Venezuela, are the Yanomamo people, hunter-gatherers whose average annual income has been estimated at the equivalent of about $100 per person per year. If you walked into a Yanomamo village and counted up all the stone tools and baskets, arrow points, arrow shafts, bows, cotton yarn, cotton and vine hammocks, clay pots, assorted other tools, various medicinal remedies, pets, food products, articles of clothing, and the like, you'd end up with a figure of around 300. Before 10,000 years ago, this was the approximate material wealth of every village on the planet. If our species is about 100,000 years old, then 90% of our history has been spent in the state of relative economic simplicity. I'm using the 100,000 figure as the lower boundary of the estimate between 100 and 160,000 for the last bottleneck migration out of Africa from which all of us apparently come from. Um, Living along the Hudson River that borders New York and New Jersey are the Manhattan people. 
consumer traders whose average annual income has been estimated at $40,000 per person per year. If you walked into the Manhattan Village and counted up all the different products available at retail stores and restaurants, factory outlets, and superstores, you'd end up with a figure of around $10 billion as measured in stock-keeping units, SKUs, that marketers use, that the barcode system is now over $10 billion. They just had to add some more bars and digits to it to get it up to $100 billion, and eventually it'll be a, a trillion uh, possible. The, this difference of 400 times in income and 33 million times in products, almost beggars description. If ever there was a great leap forward, this was it. Comparable to the evolution of bipedalism, the big brain and consciousness, equivalent to the invention of fire, the printing press, and the internet, and on par with the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, and the digital revolution. And the great leap forward did not happen gradually. It's been estimated that this $100 per person per year had risen only to about $150 per person uh, per year by 1000 BCE, the end of the Bronze Age and the time of King David. It did not exceed $200 per person per year until after 1750 AD, uh, and the onset of the Industrial Revolution. In other words, it took 97,000 years to go from 100 to $150 per person per year, then another 2,750 years to climb to $200 per person per year, and finally 250 years to ascend to today's level of $6,600 per person per year for the entire world. And as we just saw, an order of magnitude higher still for the wealthiest people in the richest nations. If we compress that 100,000-year period into just one year, then the last 250-year period of relative prosperity would represent less than one day out of the year. Or if we condense the 100 millennium into one 24-hour day, our epoch of industrial production and market economies accounts for a mere 3.6 minutes. In other words, the age in which we live and take for granted is normal, in fact, <clears throat> uh, 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 constitutes a mere one quarter of 1% of the history of humanity. So that's the problem I'm trying to solve. That's a really weird thing that, that, that what, what the world we live in is completely anomalous. And, and, and the reason it's, it's, it's weird and strange is, is how does all this happen? And, uh, and so I, I try to answer that question coming at, uh, at it from different sciences, beginning with complexity theory. So I'm, I'm arguing that the economy is a complex adaptive system that emerges out of simpler systems. From the bottom up, you don't need a top-down intelligent designer to make this happen for the same reason you don't need it intelligent designer for the other things we know about. Uh, for example, life appears to be a self-organized emergent property of prebiotic chemicals that came together in a manner that allowed them to be self-sustaining and capable of duplication and reproduction. However that happened, surface of the water, deep parts of the water, and the deep hot rocks, who knows. Complex life appears to be a self-organized emergent property of simpler life. The cells that we're made out of, eukaryotic cells, as you know, are made of simpler cells. Uh, this is Lynn Margulis's theory uh, that the reason mitochondrial, for example, have uh, DNA, mitochondrial DNA, in which we can all track our ancestry through our maternal line, is probably because, I mean, what a weird thing if you think about that. Why would we have another set of DNA in our cells? We already have a full set of DNA in our cells. What, what's this other set there? Because that was originally a cell independent of, of our own. It was a prokaryotic cell, a simpler cell. This is Lynn's theory, and I think she's She's largely correct in that. And so this is an example of sort of a conglomeration, a, a coming together of simpler systems into more complex systems without design, without top-down instruction, just put energy into the system and, and it happens naturally. This is a property of nature, it appears. Multicellular life, 
Uh, the immune system appears to be a self-organized emergent property. Consciousness is probably best going to be explained as a self-organized emergent property of just hundreds of billions of neurons firing in patterns and sort of ratcheting up the scale from simpler to more complex uh, to doing what we're doing now, whatever it is we're doing, thinking, talking, higher reasoning, relatively higher reasoning anyway. <laughs> uh, language is obviously a self-organized emergent property. I mean, no one designed English 500 years ago to sound like this. If you try to read Beowulf in its original writing, it's impenetrable. And, uh, and, and no one designed English, to say, where I live in Southern California, to where they use the word like every three words. Uh, that, that just spontaneously arises. Uh, the law is obviously the same thing, and so, and so is the economy. So uh, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is sort of bridge building. I try to convince my conservative friends that, you know, evolution, it's just like that free market thing that you already accept and you know should not have top-down design. And trying to convince my liberal friends that, uh, you know, that evolution stuff you fully accept and understand is a bottom-up uh, emergent property. Well, the economy, the free market economy is, is a lot like that, perfectly like it. But anyway, that's one of the parallels I draw uh, with that. And, um, and so starting with that, then, uh, I look at uh, why it is that conservatives don't accept evolution and liberals don't accept free market uh, economics. Now, that's not perfect, obviously, but, but th there are certain generalizations there. Um, and one reason is in uh, chapter two I call folk economics is that um, there's certain things about the world that we're not well equipped to understand intuitively on a natural level. I mentioned earlier uh, our natural propensity to connect A to B. That's just learning. That's called association learning. And oftentimes A really is connected to B and, uh, and that's, that's why we're good learners. All animals can do this. And uh, the problem is we don't have a baloney detection module in our brain that can tell the difference uh, between a, uh, uh, they could detect a false positive. That, that is, A looks like it's connected to B, but in fact it's not. And there's nothing in our brains designed to really be good at picking those, those false positives out. And, uh, and so that's why, you know, I have job security at Skeptic, I guess, because uh, we'll always have weird things to investigate. Um, and, uh, and certainly this is, uh, the reason this, I think the, the, the best metaphor of this uh, comes from Richard Dawkins, who has invented most of the great metaphors in science. Uh, and what he calls middle world, or what I prefer for literative reasons, uh, middle land, that is, in, in the middle land in which we evolved in the plains of Africa, most things are sort of a middling size compared to us. So, so say in size, it ranged between like ants and mountain ranges. That's kind of our, our range of perspective of size. So things that are smaller than ants, like, you know, molecules and atoms and electrons and subatomic particles, there's nothing intuitive for us to grasp to understand that. Uh, atom is like a solar system with electrons going around the nucleus. Well, no, actually, it's not like that at all. But boy, it sure helps to have that simple 3D model. And that's why we struggle in the history of science to come up with the right metaphor, because on that scale or the other scale, size of planets, stars, galaxies, expanding bubble universes, multiple bubble universes, and so forth, there's nothing in our uh, middle land world in, in which we can hook it into our brains and say, yes, I understand that now. So. That's why much of science requires this uh, constant uh, education and vigilance and coming up with interesting metaphors to hook it onto something else. So in terms of um, understanding uh, causality and biology, same, same problem. Uh, our, our vast experience with designed objects is that they were designed by us. So naturally, when we see something that looks complex and designed, an eye, an arm, a wing, a wing looks like it's designed for flying, and let's be honest, it was. Evolution's the designer of wings and eyes, but, but our natural intuition is not 
to think of it that way, to think of, well, there must be somebody like me who's just a lot smarter that made this, uh, something like that. So intuitively, we think intelligent design or counterintuitively evolution, so it's harder. And then in this realm, the social realm, the economic realm, in, in our uh, middle land world of the Paleolithic environment in which we evolved, there were no market economies. There was no disparity of wealth. There was very little division of labor. Um, these were mostly egalitarian societies in which there's a mass redistribution of what little wealth there was. And when somebody was able to accumulate slightly more wealth, uh, this usually caused considerable problems because, to be honest, probably, these were ill-gotten uh, gains, most likely. And, uh, and it's really only in the last maybe century or two where it's become possible to actually become wealthy in a relatively free and fair manner. Uh, throughout the history even of civilization, most of the wealth was accumulated you know, through kings and priests and so on, through, at the expense of somebody else. It really was a zero-sum uh, world, and, and I think we don't live in that world anymore, but our brains do. And that's why, and one reason why we don't trust uh, markets and people have a difficult time understanding it. For that same reason, they have a difficult time understanding evolution. And so continuing with the parallels, let's say, between Adam Smith and Charles Darwin, I think these are two of the greatest metaphors in the history of Western civilization, the invisible hand and natural selection. We already know and are comfortable with natural selection, but of course, remember, nobody's selecting anything. There's no, there's no selective process, and even uh, evolutionary theorists themselves have a really hard time getting around the metaphor language and talking about, like if you read almost any paleoanthropological popular work, They'll describe fossils, fossil hominids, as like almost human or partially human or halfway human, as if a, uh, a Australopithecine is on its way to becoming us. And of course, they weren't on their way to becoming anything. They were just trying to make a living and get their genes into the next generation, just like us. Um, I mean, I used to think of, I used to try to think of the polar bear as a nice, try to think of transitional fossils that are living. And, well, a polar bear is a nice transitional fossil between a land mammal and a marine mammal. And, oh gosh, maybe if global warming comes, it'll become a marine mammal. But that's completely wrong. It's not becoming anything. It's just a, it's just a polar bear trying to get something to eat every day and, and pass its genes on to the next generation. The only thing it might become is extinct, or, or maybe it'll move, migrate south and become much more of a land mammal. Or, you know, who knows? But, but it's not going anywhere. There's no selection for anything going anywhere. Nevertheless, it's still a useful metaphor. And, and you know Darwin's whole business of the pigeon breeding and creationists say, you see, pigeon breeders are intelligent designers of the pigeons. Yes, it's just an analogy of what's actually going on in nature, but there's nobody selecting it. And this is the problem with the invisible hand. We can't help but think, well, you mean like the governments, the top-down designer, that's the invisible hand. No. Smith's point was that you don't need any designer. It just spontaneously happens from the bottom up. Uh, now, a couple of myths about Smith. Um, he was not just blindly... Uh, pro-capitalistic, pro-business. In fact, he was just as skeptical uh, of corporations and businesses uh, uh, as he should have been because there was, uh, well, what it, uh, Ralph Nader calls it, the corporate welfare. That, that is, corporations are only too happy to use government largesse when they can get it. And uh, he talked about whenever businessmen meet even over uh, uh, spirits, uh, you know, adult beverages, and uh, and dinner and so on. It is long before they begin uh, conspiring against the public uh, to fix prices and so on. Yes, he recognized all that. But his point was that if you want to create a wealthy nation, the wealth of nations, um, you have to just let people do uh, what they want to do. It's just people running around trying to make a living, 
like polar bears and everybody else, and get their genes into the next generation. Out of that spontaneously emerges trade and, and so on. The more you interfere with that, the more difficult it becomes to accumulate wealth. And so he was debunking the myth of mercantilism. That is, the best way for a nation to become wealthy is to uh, compete in a zero-sum model against other countries. And uh, what Smith was saying is that we're not in that world anymore. You don't have to do that. You can make, become actually wealthier if you don't do that. The other myth about Smith is that um, uh, is that before he wrote The Wealth of Nations and became famous as Mr. Laissez-Faire Economist, he, he was a professor of moral philosophy at Edinburgh University, and his first book was called A Theory of Moral Sentiments. Sentiments are what we would call emotions. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's sort of a theory of the origins of emotions. Uh, moral emotions. Why should we be moral? So this is like one of these great questions that we skeptics deal with. You know, why why are we? If there's no God, how do why would you? Why should we be moral? And uh, and so his answer was is that we have an innate sense of morality. We deeply understand and intuit empathy and sympathy for other people. And without that, you can't have a civil society or a market economy. So in fact, contrary to Smith being sort of associated with this cutthroat, greedy, nasty, Gordon Gecko, greed is good uh, view of capitalism, in fact, it was quite the opposite. And, uh, and I think part of the problem I've, I've figured out in, this, in uh, the mind of the market here is, is that um, for the same reason people, I think, of, uh, don't trust evolution on another level. When you, when you ask people what you don't like about the theory, I don't believe in evolution. Why not? You know, usually they don't know anything about it. But one of the myths they hold is that it means we're just animals. We're not moral. I mean, that means we're just cutthroat, greedy, nasty, competitive, nature's red and tooth and claw. That comes from the fact that after The Origin of Species was published, uh, Huxley and Herbert Spencer sort of won out in this battle over against their opponents about whether natural selection was a force for elimination or a force for creation. Of course, it's both. But, but in sort of the competing world of ideas, um, uh, uh, Spencer's description of natural selection as survival of the fittest is still used today and still thought of, you know, that an organism is fit if it's faster or it's stronger or it's a better predator and kill more animals. Well, it might be you're more fit if you're smaller, uh, tiny, more well camouflaged, if you're more cooperative and pro-social and nice to your fellow group members, something like that. So um, I think one of the myths we need to debunk about evolution is that it's not just competitive cutthroat, greedy, eliminative, extinction-based, that in fact there's a whole other side of it, and this is nicely written in a book called Mutual Aid in 1903, I think it was, by Peter Kropotkin, who lost the battle to Huxley and Spencer, that in fact what he saw in his native uh, Russia was most social animals are incredibly cooperative and pro-social and they get along just fine, and the stuff we see on nature channels, you know, of animals constantly fighting and killing one another, and it looks like nature red in tooth and claw, well, when you, when you see the making of those films or you talk to the filmmakers, you know, it takes like weeks to get that 30-second shot. They just sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait. And nothing's happening. Um, and uh, so, uh, th so those are two myths that I'm, I'm debunking here. That, um, in fact, if, if evolution was only a force for elimination, it really was like that all the time. Uh, I don't think complex life could have evolved. Uh, all, going all the way back to, to uh, Lynn's uh, prokaryotic cells, becoming eukaryotic. None of that would have happened if there wasn't some other force that worked there. And I think uh, market economies would have imploded centuries ago if business people really were like Jeffrey Skilling and corporations were all like Enron. Uh, so I have a whole chapter contrasting and comparing Enron and Google and their corporate environments and what leads to the breakdown of, uh, of moral systems within a corporation. And uh, 
And, and what gave him this whole idea for this little bit of the book was when I read uh, Jeffrey Skilling's uh, comment that his favorite book, uh, Jeffrey Skilling was the CEO of Enron, his favorite book when he was a student at Harvard Business School was Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. I thought, oh, so he thinks evolution is this sort of selfish, nasty, brutish, cutthroat. And he had this incredible system um, uh, at, at Enron where you had to be reevaluated every six months. And there was a required, like grading on a curve, there was a required 10% of employees had to be fired. So there's this constant tension in his company of, you know, if you don't, if you don't produce every single day, you're out. And, and you have to be out. Somebody has to go. And uh, that sets up that kind of environment in which the whole system breaks down. And then, of course, people are going to cheat and lie and, and, and in that kind of environment. More, of course, most corporations are more like Google. Don't be evil. And um, um, Okay, so um, the, the, the problem to solve here from an evolutionary perspective is uh, why should total strangers trade with, with one another in, in a market economy? So we begin with something like, if we make it more of a base uh, question of, of um, uh, why should anybody in any kind of environment, social environment, interact with anybody else in a positive fashion? Why not just kill everybody? Uh, as, as Jared Diamond likes to say, if, uh, you know, if you're in Papua New Guinea and you're a native, native Papua New Guinean and you, you walk down a path and you run into a stranger from another group, uh, you should either turn or run or kill him. I mean, that, that's the natural inclination. There has to be something else in place to prevent that from happening. So from the selfish gene model, you start with kin selection. That is, the reason we're nice to other people that we're related to, actually, of, of course, is because this does help us get our genes into the next generation. Okay, fine, no problem. Those that are closely related to me, I'll be nice to them and cooperative and pro-social because that's actually good for my genes. So kin selection, that's fine. <laughs> What about people I'm not related to, but that I know that are members of my group? Well, that we have reciprocal altruism for. I'll be, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. That works well as long as it's not a one-shot deal. That is, if we have a lot of opportunities for interaction, we know each other over a long period of time. You know who in your group is a trustworthy, reliable, cooperative, pro-social member, and who's a nasty cheating bastard. And, uh, and one way we know that is uh, through gossip. Gossip is a, um, a, a means of gathering information and data about other people in order to assess their trustworthiness as a fellow group member. So one purpose of religion is it's a wonderful uh, signaling system to tell your other fellow group members, look, you can count on me. I'm there every weekend. I'm not eating the meat or I'm doing the thing on Saturday. I'm wearing this or, you know, whatever the rituals are. It doesn't matter what the rituals are. It's the doing of the rituals that signals to your fellow group members, I'm one of you. You can really count on me. And, um, and so we know this uh, 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 from a, a huge body of research that I summarize in, partially in this book, but more in The Science of Good and Evil. Um, and so, but then we have the next step, the harder problem. What about complete total strangers in different groups? Why not just you know, turn and run or kill them? And um, sometimes this is called the problem of tipping um, in evolutionary uh, ethics studies. And the problem of tipping goes like this. So let's say uh, we go out to dinner uh, after this or something, and, and, uh, and, and, and it comes time to pay the bill, and I'm going to leave a tip. Now, uh, why, why should I tip the wait person? Uh, I mean, why, I should just keep the money. I could uh, put it in my kid's college account or something. That, that would be better for my genes. Why would I give it to somebody else? And uh, uh, Well, maybe it's uh, one of my regular haunts, and, you know, I'm going to go back there again, and I want to get good service. So it's a reciprocal. It's a reciprocal altruistic thing. That wait person may remember me. So 
so I better give a tip. But, um, but wait, wait, what if I'm in a foreign city and, and I'm not likely to go to that restaurant again? Well, maybe I'm here with, with the National Capital Area skeptics and I don't want them to think I'm a cheapskate, you know? So I leave a tip to send a signal to my fellow in-group members, uh, fellow skeptics that, hey, I'm a good, you can count on me. I'm one of, I'm one of you. Look, I, I'm a generous person. But what if I'm, what if I go out tonight uh, by myself in a restaurant I'll probably never go to again, and even if I did, the chance of my getting the same person or zip? I mean, I, why would I leave any money at all? I mean, I could save that 3%. I don't have to leave the tip. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, my answer to the question is because um, we are truly, deeply, innately moral in that it isn't enough to fake being a moral person uh, and, and, and cheat uh, every, every once in a while. That is, in our Paleolithic environment, where everybody was either related to one another or knows one another, uh, your reputation uh, uh, goes, uh, precedes you, and, and people know that. So if you do enough of those sorts of things in that environment, you'll get caught. And therefore, you, you can't fake it. Uh, people know when other people are not consistently lying, but, but you, you can sort of tell in a cumulative fashion who sort of is a reliable good person who isn't. We can, as fuzzy boundary categories, we can sort our friends and, and enemies that way fairly fairly well. And so what I'm claiming is that over the long eons, it wasn't enough to sort of rationally calculate the, the Machiavellian manipulation of other people by pretending to be moral, but you actually had to do it, believe it, live it, and become moral. So that's my answer to theists. Why, why would you be good without God? And well, one answer is, uh, you mean if there were no God, what would you do, or who would you do? I mean, what? Uh, and thank you for the warning uh, that you wouldn't be moral without God, because I sometimes get that answer. In case you change your mind, don't call me. What is Stranger Things? Stranger Things is the world's first science fiction anthology series syndicated on the internet, shot and released in high definition for free. How is this possible? Welcome to the cutting edge, says Chris Miller, co-founder of Patio Books. This is great online entertainment, says Michael R. Menengay, Farpoint Media. J.C. Hutchins, author of Seven Sons, says Earl Newton and his crew are out of their minds. Stranger Things is a mini masterpiece playing right there on your screen. There are stranger things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your philosophy. Go to StrangerThings.tv and find out just how strange your world can be. As sure as the star-bellied sneeches butter the underside of their toast. All things being equal, the simplest answers worth most. Don't rely on Vishnu, Buddha, Ron Popeil, or the Holy Ghost. Just consider these words, and that ship of life you're sailing on might not smash into the coast. Watch your 
oceans of gullible conformity. Oh, I've had enough of all the smiles and all the teeth and all the nods. And I've had my fill of promises from magic rays to painless perfect bonds. channel that flashes before me I can't believe the level of spirituality oh I've had enough of the geeks who have claimed to have found the way I wish that guy watching would just take a sec and consider what I have got to say Yourself, little man. Don't let them tell you that they have the plan. Cause everyone's lost, chin deep in the sand. And what they're trying to sell to you, you shouldn't be buying. Think for yourself, little girl. Don't let them tell. Tell you they ain't Well, they're just lying Yeah, they're just lying Reading all the pages In the standard magazines I wonder if they realize What all that small print means Oh, you'll need a microscope To read about the no-fault guarantee Results not typical, and this offer is void in any state that's spelled with an E, like Idaho. Watching all the people plays, bet after amazing bet. I wonder if they realize their misplaced raison debt. Oh, but they don't want to hear about the odds and statistic A and B. Brother who read a book by this other guy who says that hey, this stuff always works for me. That's why I say, think for yourself, little folks. Yo, check one, two, one, two. Is this thing on? Hey, these are the jokes. Where are the dudes who don't like jabs and pokes? Cause when you can't laugh at yourself, you just end up crying. Yourself, little friend. Is it you that they like, or is it the money you spend? Beware of the jerks who'd rather break than bend. And to question anything to them is just like dying. Yeah, it's like dying.
washing all the claims out on the air. Oh, I've had enough of the promises that are so damn tremulous. And I can't conceive the cash of creeps and cretins who continue to be so uncannily credulous. You might get won't be Hawaiian. Think for yourselves, one and all. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't beat up Peter if you're pissed at Paul. Don't fall for anything, yeah. And please don't drop the ball. Just be sure to do your who, what, where, when, and why. Just be sure to do your. You can't control the stimulus. Control the response.